Lena Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. We're here today with Dr. Maha Atal, who's a lecturer at the University of Glasgow, who studies the political economy of corporate power. And prior to her academic career, she was an award-winning business journalist. So hi, Maha. Thanks so much for being on. Hi, Lena. It's good to be here. So maybe we could start, you know, just hearing a little bit about your background. Um, what led you, you know, you studied company rule here at Cambridge for your, for your PhD. Um, so what led you to study to, and choose that dissertation topic? And how do technology corporations like specifically fit into your research now? Sure. Um, well, thank you for having me here. It's great to be here. Um, it's a it, that that question is going to come in two parts. Um, so, in terms of how I got into the topic that ended up being my PhD, as you said, I was a business journalist before I became an academic, and. As a business journalist, I spent some of that time as a foreign correspondent in um, South Asia and the Middle East, um, writing for a variety of different outlets as a freelancer, um, but on a grant um, funded by an organization called the Pulitzer Center in Washington that gives grants to um, journalists to go abroad and report on stories that are undercovered in the American media. Um, and I was reporting in a region where most of the news you would get out of that region was about the war on terror. And I was trying to report on more kind of the economics and the political economy um, stories that were emerging out of that region to try and tell sort of a different story. Um, and so I was reporting on what would be normal business stories, but I would be going, for example, to write about a town where there's a mining contract that's up for grabs and two different companies are bidding on it. Feels like a standard business story. And then you would go and visit the offices of the companies that were involved. And in fact, you would find that you were not really in an office building, you were in like a small city that the company was governing, housing, hospitals, all kinds of apparatus. Um, and I was finding that where they were bidding over these contracts, for example, they were involved in doing a lot of local governance as part of how they were securing those contracts. Um, and that happened to me in a couple of different places around different companies and different stories. And I had an academic background as a historian. That's what my undergraduate degree is in. And I knew that what I was seeing, there were historical precedents for that. 19th century paternalistic factory towns, colonial company settlements that we had um, models for what I was seeing happen with these contemporary companies. And that never appeared in any story I was writing because I would be there writing about the contract dispute or writing about some labor issue or writing about some particular thing involving that company. But I knew that there was a pattern um, and the historian's language for that is company rule. Um, and so the doctorate sort of grew out of wanting to understand to what extent looking at it from that long historical lens told us something about how companies exercise political power today. Um, and most of the companies that I was looking at, in part just because of where I was, um, but in part, I think actually for empirical reasons, were kind of natural resource companies, mining companies, oil and gas companies, big agribusinesses. Um, and those ended up being the companies that appeared in the dissertation. And there are a couple of reasons for that. But a big part of it is that when you have that kind of company, you have to go where the resources are. You don't really have a choice about where you want to set up your company because you need to go where the stuff that you want is, um, which might be in a place where there isn't a lot of other infrastructure. Um, so almost functionally, in order to operate your business, you are going to end up building a lot of infrastructure, becoming that kind of governing actor. So they were the easiest types of cases to do. Um, and that's kind of why they ended up being the subject of the dissertation. So the tech companies didn't really factor in. 
um, in a weird way to, um, to the dissertation project, even though I had reported on them, um, that had been one of my beats as a reporter, um, but it ended up not being the thing that led me into thinking about company rule. Um, and then what started to happen is that while I was working on company rule, I would be describing this phenomenon to people and they would say, well, what about the tech companies? Um, and that led me to kind of revisit some of the work that I had done as a journalist and kind of update it with an academic eye and start publishing about the tech companies. Um, and I came back to some of that material after having really been away from those companies for a decade. Um, and that sort of produced some of what I've published about the tech companies. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's so interesting to think about tech companies from that company rule, like the, you know, company towns um, perspective, particularly since I think the, the like headquarters of these tech companies often mimic company towns more than necessarily like where they're going out and having those services. So like the Facebook headquarters could be like an island, same Google. So I wonder then thinking about like your research and the tech companies, do you find that you know, the power that they wield, you know, people will often say, oh, this is unprecedented, like technology companies are doing something really, really new. Um, and do you think that's true? Like, do you, do you find that the tech companies are, are, are really fundamentally different than these perhaps like resource extractive companies that you're, you're looking at? Um, or, or are these concerns about technology corporations just kind of different iterations of the same concerns that come up historically and more generally in industry? Yeah, so I think it's a little of both. Um, so what I, what I think is, is common is the type of power that these companies exercise and part of what actually does make them you know, a, a viable comparison for some of these more natural resource companies that I look at and, and in the, the book that I'm writing out of the dissertation, I'm bringing them in. Um, it, is that the power they have, right, which I think sort of academics sometimes call platform power, um, is a sort of infrastructural power. Um, it's a power that comes from um, owning, managing, um, being in some way in control of the infrastructure of the platform, the apparatus, on top of which other competition sits. And that is the power that railway companies have historically had, that telecoms companies have historically had, that oil and gas companies have. And so I do think there's a continuity there. And the thing that is true of those kind of companies in any age where the infrastructure they are in control of is dominant is that having that kind of infrastructural power um, sort of leads you towards a kind of monopolization because you own the basis on which everybody else competes which means that nobody else is competing with you fairly because you're both owning the marketplace and playing in that marketplace. Um, and that's a common sort of structural power um, that sort of companies that have a strategic piece of infrastructure have had at different points in time. But what that strategic piece of infrastructure is has changed. Um, what I do think is different about these companies, and this is the argument that I make in, in my Janice Faces article, um, which is sort of about Google, but is sort of about these companies more broadly, um, is that these companies are aware of that power. So, you know, in the 19th century, the steam engine is a transport technology. It's a media communications technology. It's a technology of industrial production, right? Factories are being powered with it. Um, and if you were a country that had different government departments to regulate transport and media and industrial production, well, those companies would pose a problem for you. 
Um, and they did become monopolies and they had to be taken apart. Um, but we don't have evidence of the executives of those companies being so consciously aware um, that the power they have comes from this kind of infrastructural position and seeking to deliberately exploit it. Um, I do think that these companies are very aware of what it is that they're doing, in part because the historical precedents exist. Um, and so the discursive element of it, I think, is new. I wonder too then, do you think, do you think anything about the technology itself changes that, that calculus meant infrastructural power? Because one of the things I think a lot about with like the railroads, for instance, is that like you can nationalize railroads pretty easily, right? Like you just send the military into like whatever checkpoints sure. that the government, you know, the company headquarters, what have you, right? You, you can kind of physically um, break that up. Whereas, whereas something like the infrastructural power of platforms, like how do, how do you nationalize Facebook's platform or like how do you nationalize cloud computing companies? Um, like, do you march on the data centers? Like, like, so do you think something about like the tech, the form of the technology itself, the yeah. virtualness I, of it changes? No, I it? think, I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. I think there's two pieces there, right? One piece is about the global nature of the infrastructure. Um, and that national regulation has diminishing returns in the kind of global economy that we're living in. Um, and I think that's true, not just of technology companies, but clearly we're seeing that with finance, we're seeing that with, um, you know, even with the supply chain. I mean, there are just, um, even with labor, right? I mean, it's really difficult for any one state to do something about a governance issue um, in the private sector because the private sector doesn't really operate um, on a national basis anymore. Um, and that's not totally unprecedented in the sense that in the colonial period, um, this actually is an issue. It does come up a bit where, um, you know, imperial metropoles find that there are limits to what they can do about companies that are headquartered even in their own colonies, um, that those turn out to be kind of jurisdictionally um, sometimes different places. Um, so it's not totally unprecedented. Globalization isn't completely new. Um, but that part, I do think, is more pronounced now than it was, just because there are actually more jurisdictions than there were before. Um, so, I mean, from the perspective of corporate regulation, one of the things that decolonization does is that there are now, you know, 200 plus jurisdictions and there weren't before. Um, so that part is sort of not technology specific, but our era of globalization specific. Um, the technology, I think, magnifies that problem because where there are jurisdictional disputes about businesses that have physical plant and assets, um, it's an empirical question where they are. Um, when your business is something that is conducted so virtually that you can move its location at any time, um, the ability to kind of shape shift by just relocating where the work is done, um, I think that does shift the scale. And I think that that is true about the technology and not just about the technology companies. That technology also facilitates banks moving where they do certain activities, right? It facilitates all kinds of companies, um, you know, uh, creating shells and headquartering them somewhere. And since everything happens over the internet, you could just claim that all the business is done in a jurisdiction where the regulation does not apply. Um, so both for technological reasons and for kind of just globalization reasons, um, the footprint of national regulation is a lot thinner um, than it would otherwise be, which doesn't mean there aren't things we can do, uh, but it means that if you fantasize about a Teddy Roosevelt style breakup of these companies, and I do, um, you know, it won't come in that form. Yeah, that's that's another like question I think of a lot about, which is that, you know, the, the anti-monopoly or antitrust conversation 
takes place primarily like in the West, whether it be in the US or kind of the EU. And it's sort of assumed, right, that like if the US government said like break up, that they have they have the power to do it. And Facebook or Google or Amazon or whatever would have to, and probably same with the EU. Um, but that's not necessarily true for, you know, the the countries in which like Facebook, Google, et cetera, the big tech companies have a lot of their primary operations, which are predominantly taking place in the global south, in which, you know, Facebook essentially asks as a telecom company in Myanmar versus, you know, just a, a platform uh, or, you know, even if it's critical or a necessary platform in the West. Um, so I wonder, like, how do you think about that power differential between these technology corporations that are located in like the US or Europe in general? Um, and then and how that how their power plays out more globally in the global south. Um, so, do, do, you know, do you think one, do you think these companies play play a fundamentally different role, say, like, is, is Facebook really different um, in terms of like misinformation that's facilitating and say Ethiopia, Myanmar, India, than like the role Facebook played in facilitating misinformation in like the January 6th Capitol Hill riots in the US, for instance, or, or, is, or are these tech companies the same regardless of the context that they're in? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I I think that what I do think they're different kinds of companies um, in the sense that in part because they play in all these different markets and have all these different products and you know sort of um, play them off each other for monopoly purposes, um, what they are associated with in different places is different. Um, so in a lot of the countries that you're describing in the global south, Facebook's most important product is WhatsApp. It's not Facebook. Um, right, so that's different um, in the sense that what they do and how people use it and so on um, is different. But in terms of the problem that that you're sort of zeroing in on around kind of um, harmful content, dangerous content, um, sort of incitations of violence that are taking place on Facebook-owned communication platforms, there I do think that to some extent what's happening is similar. Um, but the reason that it is not being dealt with is different. So in the case of the run-up to January 6th, for example, um, what we're learning from the Francis Haugen leaks, right, is that um, Facebook knew that these groups existed, that these groups were a problem. Um, it was able to follow what they were doing. It knew who they were. It was aware of what was going on. And it made a choice basically not to police them. Um, it made a choice that after the election itself in the US was concluded in November 2020, um, Facebook sort of breathed a sigh of relief that there hadn't been any violence during the election uh, and called off a lot of its dogs, um, you know, took down a lot of its moderation infrastructure after that point, um, not anticipating that those groups would continue to be active and there would be some kind of post-election violence, um, which is what we saw. Um, so that's a choice about what to moderate, being aware that this threat exists. In some of the other cases, and I think this is particularly true in Myanmar, it appears to have been true in some of what we've seen in recent years in Sri Lanka and Kenya as well. Um, you know, Ethiopia, because it's newer, is not a case I know as well in terms of what's actually happening inside Facebook. But um, I would hypothesize that this is similar. Uh, it's not clear that they knew what was going on while it was going on in a way where they understood what it was that they were seeing. 
And that's a function of not having human moderators in those countries, having them in a regional hub, but they don't speak the relevant languages. They don't know enough of the politics to know what a dog whistle is, right? So, um, you know, the human moderators at Facebook may be well-versed enough in kind of American far-right ideology to be able to identify what are the kind of neo-Nazi signals. Um, what those signals look like, what authoritarian um, language looks like, what, um, you know, sort of uh, what is code for plans to commit violence in a particular cultural context is something that it's not fair that they have those people. So there, the choice is about not actually staffing those kind of offices. Um, and, and to the extent that, you know, they haven't, then we have to ask questions about whether that actually is feasible. Is it economic? Could a company actually do that? Have culturally competent moderators in every language that's being used. Um, I mean, it's very clear that they haven't tried uh, and, and they're sort of indictable for that. Um, but I do think the scale that we're talking about, um, you know, uh, would require, I mean, more than I think people are understanding in terms of the number of human beings you would need to employ to be kind of doing this in um, in every language. So that's the first piece of it is I think the, the, the governance and moderation problem is different. Um, even if the nature of what is being spread, I actually don't think is that different. Um, the other piece that I think is distinct, or at least if you had asked me a year ago, I would have said it's distinct, but post-January 6th, I'm not sure it is, um, is that I would have said uh, the difference with some of these other cases is that the violent radicals that we're worried about organizing on Facebook um, you know, in the US or in Europe um, are likely to be grassroots groups without the organized involvement of the state. Um, whereas in Myanmar, in India, um, in Ethiopia, we are worried about factions who have some kind of state affiliation. Um, and, you know, so one of the things people may not know, um, and, and the Wall Street Journal deserves credit for this because in the run-up to the Haugen leaks, right, they were working on this story for a long time, independent of those leaks, and had been covering what was going on in India, and one of the problems in India was that the far-right radical groups are often paramilitary organizations that are affiliated to the ruling party um, because the current ruling party of India was basically spun out as the political arm of a paramilitary group uh, um, that used to be a banned organization and isn't anymore. Um, and one of the people who was involved in making Facebook's decisions about what to regulate there um, is a senior member of that political party. Um, so that is different, the level of state involvement. But the reason I hesitate to say it's so different post-January 6th is that January 6th is on this edge of state involvement to the extent that the sitting, the incumbent president who was outgoing was encouraging these groups, even if not necessarily materially involved in planning what it was that they were doing on Facebook. So that's that closes that gap in a way um, where historically I would have said that that was a dividing factor. Yeah. It raises, you know, the two the two points that you kind of make raise this interesting issue, which is that, you know, on the one hand, one of the like proposed solutions or like pushes is like increased state involvement, governance, regulation of technology corporations, right? So it's like a problem that Mark Zuckerberg can make these decisions about, right? Like the US, whether it's the US context or the Myanmar context in ways that like fundamentally affect um the, these polities 
regardless of the fact that, that, you know, Facebook doesn't have the cultural competence, I think has one office in Southeast Asia, you know, has no, no language capacity to be able to understand what's, um, you know, the, the context of what's being shared on the platform. So, so, so kind of one push might be like, listen to local actors, like listen to local states, right? Like actually follow, you know, have more government or state involvement. But then on the other hand, as you bring up, right, a lot of the people who, um, or I should say a lot of the actors whom we from Western or human rights perspective or whatever, uh, you know, just thinking about harms to people, these are state actors. So if you listen to the local states or local government, you are, um, you know, you, you might be listening to the very people that you're worried about spreading the violence on the platform. So I wonder um, how, how, how do you kind of like approach, think about approaching this like tricky problem of governance and legitimacy within these these contexts. If we if we push Facebook to make these decisions, these like human rights decisions, or is it kind of an illegitimate power that we're giving them that you know they might not really understand? But at the same time, who if if it's not Facebook making these decisions, how should we think about like who who the company should listen to could be controlled by? Like how do how do we do this in such a way to minimize harm? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is difficult because in an ideal world, Facebook would not have this power or Twitter would not have this power, um, you know, and I think that that ship has sailed um, in the sense that, um, you know, I'm not sure that you can displace them now as the primary place where people communicate with each other uh, about politics. Um what I do think is that they do have to be careful about who they work with in a local context. Um, so a good example um, where, you know, this is a problem, right, is um, no, you cannot rely on the state, right? For the Indian case is a good example of, of why you cannot rely on the state. Um, but you also cannot necessarily rely on human rights principles derived from the West and applied locally. So a good example of this is South Africa. So in South Africa, um, the kind of white supremacist white nationalist groups um, use this language of minority rights. And what they mean by minority rights is affirmative action programs um, of which South Africa post-apartheid has a lot um, that benefit um, black mixed race, uh, Indian origin South Africans um, are a form of white genocide. Um, and their language for that is minority rights. Now that's very smart because South Africa has a extremely human rights centric constitution um, uh, in part because of the particular moment in the nineties at the kind of high point of human rights activism that it was written. Um, so it, there's a strategic reason that they use that language but it also means that that language plays in a particular way internationally where if you don't know that in South Africa minority rights is code for this other thing no algorithmic search function is gonna pick that up uh, as a form of coded hate speech. Uh, and it wouldn't be anywhere else. Um, so I don't think you can rely on the principles. Um, and I think what that does mean is that if you're gonna do it, you need to have real moderation teams in every country um, and they need to work with domestic human rights organizations who would know um, what the language is and what it isn't um, in those specific places. Um, and not every country is going to have the right kind of organization. So South Africa is one where there are a million human rights NGOs and some of them will be credible and you would be able to um, 
you know, to kind of identify somebody to help you develop, okay, these are the terms that you need to watch out for. Um, you know, this is a dog whistle here. Um, but I think they're going to have to work with groups like that on a regional basis um, if they want to be able to moderate in places outside the Western context, because I don't even think you can apply the principles in a consistent way because the terminology is going to be different. Um, and that's a term that, I mean, just within English language speaking context means something very different. Um, in South Africa, also a little bit Zimbabwe, um, in the kind of former white settler colonies of Southern Africa that it does anywhere else. So would you think, or, or do you think that that's sort of like the best case scenario given like the landscape right now that Facebook or, or whatever maintains this sort of platform power globally, but like hopefully, you know, makes inroads and connections and relationships with local human rights or uh, different types of advocacy organizations? I mean, it, realistically speaking, I think, yes. Ideally speaking, I do think there are other things we can do. So one of the problems is that when locally grown alternatives to these platforms emerge, um, you know, other kind of mass texting, you know, apps, um, other types of social networks, um, where they emerge, whether it's in the global south or anywhere else, um, the large tech companies buy them. And we have historically taken a very permissive attitude um, to these kinds of mergers. Uh, that is how most of the big tech companies became as big as they are. Um, we're not talking about natural growth in most of these cases. We're talking very significantly about growth by acquisition. Um, so while taking this approach, um, I do think we need to start taking a more aggressive attitude towards mergers. Um, so in the medium term, yes, they need to be working with civil society organizations that are independent of the state and that have an understanding of the local context. Um, and to the extent that NGOs now uh, take private consulting money, um, that's probably the way you would do it, is that you would start employing them as moderators. Um, and some of these NGOs now have moderation teams. I mean, out of Cambridge, I know that Amnesty does some really interesting digital verification work, um, right, where they try and track down kind of misinformation, verify things. Um, so there are organizations that you could be working with um, that would be local. Um, in the long term, we have to grow alternatives. Um, but that's going to take a really long time, and we have to have institutional safeguards against those alternatives being bought by the companies they're designed to compete with. I wonder, too, thinking about, you know, how do you stop, you know, presumably if you want to stop mergers, right, you use state power to, to say, no, you can't, you can't buy this company. Um, but it kind of goes back to, you know, the previous point that we were talking about in terms of, like, differential state capacity to be able to control um, corporations and and the the historic example that you brought up about um, colonialization and, and company states and like particularly you know the British East India Company is always the one that comes to mind you know there is that question there in certain contexts or at certain time periods which is that do, do these states have the capacity to control these corporations which say to be in their name you know so does the British state really have the capacity to control the British East India Company which is essentially, you know, ruling large swaths of the large swaths of the subcontinent at, at certain points, right? Um, has has a larger standing army than you know the British state in certain points. Yep. Um, so I wonder, you know, thinking about that history and thinking about now and the differences in power differentials between states and and various corporations. And particularly the fact, as you brought up, the fact that these corporations can change the states that they're in, quote unquote, quite mm -hmm. easily. 
like what do you what do you think is the an the element or 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 the 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 thing that allows states the power to coerce or control corporations right so like obviously we think the u.s state is being very powerful but a case like you know or, or the eu even but like a case like ireland or brazil or like mm-hmm. these kind of edge cases where where we're, it doesn't seem quite certain who who would win in, in a sense in a context like what do you what do you think is 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 the factor that makes states or companies more or less powerful yeah i so it's complicated and i think my view on this has changed a little bit um in that i used to think that if the company was not headquartered where you were uh you were essentially out of luck um and that since most of these companies are headquartered in the U.S. and China, and neither U.S. neither the U.S. nor China seems to want to do anything about it, um, that's changing a little bit now. But uh, it, it it wasn't for a long time. Um, that there was nothing we could do. Um, two things have changed my mind about this, um, and not just about tech companies, but about corporate power more generally. Um, in the tech space, the thing that has started to change my mind about this is GDPR. Um, and the reason GDPR is so interesting is that GDPR is a consumer protection piece of legislation, right? It's a privacy legislation, but it represents people who use these websites for free, um, who have no transactional relationship with these companies, right? It's protecting you as a person who visits facebook.com for free sometimes. It's protecting you as a person who reads the New York Times website sometimes. Um, And it's, exerting regulatory authority over companies that may not actually have any of their relevant operations in the EU. Every American newspaper that wants to serve a website to European readers now either has to take their website offline, geoblock their website, which some of them have done, right? Or they have to make their whole global website compliant with this specific EU legislation, which the larger ones have done because there's so many users of their website in the EU that it's not worth it to have two separate websites. They just changed it. So the EU, without having any traditional regulatory authority over these companies and not representing their paid consumers who are their advertisers, managed on behalf of unpaid visitors of websites to globally change the standard of how websites are delivered. Um, And most companies are delivering now a GDPR compliant website everywhere because that's easier than having two websites. Um, that's that's amazing, actually, uh, and different from um, what I would have predicted. Um, but it does have a precedent. Uh, so in political economy, we we talk about something called the California effect. Um, so California, uh, you know, had for a long time much higher environmental regulations for cars than other states in the U.S. Um, in terms of their emission um, level that they needed to meet uh, in order to be released on the California market. And California uh, buys so many of the cars that are sold in the US that it stopped being worth it uh, for car companies to make cleaner cars in California and make dirty cars to sell everywhere else. That's a waste of your plant. So they just made cleaner cars. Um, and so there, there is a precedent that there are certain types of um, state actors or sub-state actors in that case of California, um, where your market position is so important or you're so large uh, that you can actually regulate uh, in a way where your regulation becomes generalized um, by industry. The 
it used to be the case that we thought that that was basically an environmental phenomenon um, that applied to California and a few other places. Um, multiple people had tried to find examples of this with labor. They could never find it. It didn't exist. Um, GDPR is, I think, an example of it on privacy that's new, um, but still in a similar kind of consumer safety space to the one that California environmental regulations are playing in. The other example that has surprised me is that to go back to South Africa, they have all these affirmative action regulations. International companies hate those regulations. Uh, and so foreign investors in South Africa are always suing South Africa in an international court about having to comply with these affirmative action regulations that are trying to remedy a historical domestic injustice. Um, South Africa said, well, that's a bummer. Uh, if that's what international law says, we're going to withdraw from all our international investment treaties so that you can't sue us under those treaties anymore. And we want you to sign new agreements with us where you accept in the terms of your investment that you will comply with this regulation. And theory would have predicted uh, that companies would run far away from that. But South Africa has all of these strategic mineral deposits of minerals that you can't get hardly anywhere else. Um, and so that hasn't happened. Um, and I'm researching it now, uh, but my kind of preliminary finding is that that's another example where if you have a strategic natural resource, uh, you can exert some higher leverage um, on international corporate actors because you can afford to do that um, on a kind of human rights issue. So there may be examples, I might thinking about this is beginning to change, that there may be specific examples where specific states have strategic power and they may not need to be the states where the companies are headquartered, but they do need to be powerful in other ways. Yeah, that's such an interesting example to think about. Um, I, had, I hadn't considered the South Africa case. I wonder then though, because it seems like what you're saying, you know, I'm from California, so love the California effect. We feel so powerful. Um, but, but, but it seems like the reason for that is like market share. And that's kind of the same argument about the EU, which is like, it's not necessarily that the EU is such a powerful institution. It's a supernatural thing. It's just that the EU represents a really big- A lot of people, yeah. Market, yeah. So mm -hmm. it's, it's just not worth it. it you know, same, same with, you know, California. It's not that California, you know, Gavin Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom can, you know, has any particular power. He just happens to represent a lot of people. Right. Um, and then it seems to me then like with the tech companies, the, 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 the resource is also the people. So uh, I'm thinking about like the differences between the Myanmar and Australia case where in Myanmar, it's like, you know, the, the, the military cannot you know, Facebook's banned military junta accounts, right? Like mm -hmm. these people cannot access their Facebook accounts, but they can ban Facebook in Myanmar, right? right? So, so they can't compel Facebook to give them back their accounts, but they can shut the company out mm -hmm. of the country. And they did this during the coup. Mm -hmm. But then it seemed almost as if they couldn't do it because Facebook was so important to that very market economy that it, you know, even though it was, you know, clamping down on the ability of protesters to organize, it was also, you know, kind of destroying the economy. They could they couldn't sustain that in the long term to to shut the military out. Uh, sorry, to for the military to shut Facebook out. So it seems then there there's this like interesting um, power be between the two, and and when Facebook's willing to give up. A market as well. So thinking about the Australia case in which Australia said, right, they're going to pass legislation. Facebook said, fine, you can't share news in 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 Australia. In Australia, which turned out not to be such a large and important country. 
Yeah, um, exactly. To the surprise of Australians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I'm wondering, like, how? So do you, do you think it's the market? And and if it is the market, then does then does the fact that the power of these companies acting as the infrastructure for the market then then change that in a way that doesn't isn't true for say cars? Yeah, I no, I think that's I think that is right. I think that is right. And I and I think that part of what also makes it complicated is, you know. Um, in the grand global scheme of states, the Australian state is not one of the worst ones, right? But some of the states that are challenging these companies, I mean, the Myanmar example is a good one where, you know, rah-rah state power, but this is not a state that you necessarily want to be able to exercise that power. Um, you know, uh, India is a really interesting example because the Indian government has done a couple of things to challenge the tech companies, some of them that we might welcome and some of them that we might not. Um, that you know is difficult for kind of advocates of tech regulation to thread. So one is that India did pass legislation that is designed to break up tech companies, um, which is that they passed a law saying uh, what's called structural separation, um, that you cannot have uh, a same company being the owner of a marketplace and a player in that marketplace. Um, and what that practically means is that Amazon in India cannot sell Amazon owned brand products. If everybody did that, Amazon would have to offload the divisions that make the knockoff Ugg boots that are made by Amazon that you get when you search for Ugg boots on Amazon. Um, and they'll probably get sued about that. Um, and that will be an interesting case to watch. But at the same time, they are trying to get Twitter to remove the accounts of journalists and political dissidents and people who are critical of the Indian government. Um, so depending on the state, right, state assertion of power against these companies may or may not be a good thing. Um, I think it does matter who the state is. Um, and sometimes the ones that are powerful and influential, I mean, India certainly, you know, does have, is a big enough market that, um, you know, Amazon will have to navigate this regulation carefully before they would challenge it. Um, it some of the big ones may also not be so cuddly. One of the things you you kind of, brought up before that then I also think is is an interesting um example is is you know what people you know kind of the fracturing of different these different e ecosystems so we've been talking a lot about like Google and Facebook for instance American big tech companies but I also wonder about um like the role of China and the way that like China is thinking about regulating its its tech companies and I thought that one like very interesting case was when um, the Trump administration tried to uh, take control of TikTok, um, in which it, it, it seems like, you know, like TikTok is a Chinese owned company that, as you said, similar to like the EU case where it's serving American users. And so the US had this sort of like, again, market power, but it didn't necessarily have the same kind of power over TikTok that it, it might over even Amazon. Yeah. Um, so I wonder, how do you think, you know, thinking about like the Chinese state approach to tech companies, both in terms of like controlling the tech companies and how those companies are proliferating globally, how do you think that kind of will play out? And, and do you think that we'll see kind of a, um, uh, a, a face off or a battle between the two kind of like approaches to regulating tech? Yeah, I so I think I think the Chinese cases are interesting um, in part because the companies, most large companies in China, are not um, totally private companies in the same way 
that they would be, um, you know, sort of in other places, right? That we are talking about entities that are in some ways closer institutionally and in spirit um, to the British East India Company problem, right? That they're kind of semi-state entities uh, because of the way that corporations have to operate um, and the sort of the degree to which they have to, um, you know, either be in some kind of joint venture status with the state or allow a certain amount of um, sort of a certain percentage of state actors to sit on their board and so on, that there are these kind of enmeshments with the state that are different. Um, and so that, I mean, definitely changes how much a foreign state that represents a market for those companies can do anything about them. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, the Chinese state will come out in defense of TikTok in a way that the US government did not come out in defense of tech companies having to update the privacy notices on their website. Uh, I mean, people think that, right? I mean, it's very common to kind of in other places to have American tech companies critiqued as though they're kind of um, avatars of American state power, but the American state doesn't do that much water carrying for them. Um, they would love it to do more. Um, China's very different. And I think we saw that, that that very quickly became a standoff between the US government and the Chinese government um, in part because those companies have a closer relationship with the state. Um, so that I think does change that dynamic. On the other hand, it means that China can do more or less whatever it wants about those companies. Um, and because of the sort of relationship they have with the state and that they have to have with the state, um, those companies cannot afford to say, uh, which sort of a Western tech company can say, well, la 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 sucks for you, we'll reincorporate somewhere else. Uh, that doesn't really work for you. Uh, if you are a Chinese company, the executives of your companies are Chinese nationals who would like to go on living in China. That option is not available. Um, so that's very different, right? If you're looking for a state that can exercise some conventional Teddy Roosevelt style power uh, against tech companies, yes, if China wanted to break up Tencent tomorrow, it could. Um, it doesn't. Uh, that's a separate problem. Um, but I don't think there's a state capacity problem in China. Yeah, then brings up this interesting question because, you know, it, it is true, right, like that the the relationship between the U.S. state and the American tech companies is very different in terms of like state-owned enterprises and, and, and um, thing, you know, government influence and the, and the, the approach to, to business in general. But at the same time, right, I, especially during the Obama administration, there was such a such a fond feeling between the the tech world and um, the government, right? Thinking about the number of people who worked at Google and that, that then went to work for Obama, who was like the tech president, and then mm -hmm. um, you know the massive amount of government contracts that all of these tech corporations are um, benefiting from, um, and that really made obviously made the tech industry um, in the beginning. So so I wonder then especially then also drawing on your your experience as a journalist like do, do you do you think that's still true like do you think do you think the american government i mean i'm always torn with how the Biden administration is playing the tech whether it's playing into the tech critical or the tech friendly like how has kind of the environment changed in terms of the relationship between government and tech companies and 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 do you think it's still that kind of friendly and warm do you think biden really is means it when he hires, you know, Lena Khan and Tim Wu and everyone. I, I mean, I hope so, but to some extent, I'm not sure it matters, right? They're there. Um, so, you know, the, I mean, the actions speak, I think. 
Um, I do think, and I don't think that's necessarily a reflection of, of Joe Biden particularly um, or, or anybody's personal opinions, including Barack Obama's. I think it's a reflection that the dynamics have changed a lot. So when I started as a journalist um, in the mid-aughts, um, the environment was very hopeful about these companies, um, I, you know, and including among reporters and including myself. Um, and all the coverage was sort of breathless about their transformative democratizing power. Um, it very quickly became clear that something uh, darker was happening. Um, as they were starting to make acquisitions in 2007, 2008, 2009, um, I do think there were a number of reporters, um, myself included, who wanted to start to say this is a problem. Um, and the pushback to that was powerful. Um, the Janice Faces academic article is to some extent a success or regurgitation of a set of arguments that I had published journalistically in the New Statesman in 2009. And the pushback we got to that, um, that these companies might be data companies, so rather than thinking about them from the perspective of advertising, research, or whatever, we should be thinking about the data that they were hoovering up and what did it mean for somebody to monopolize data. All of this now feels like this would be boring and it would not appear on the cover of the New Statesman if you wrote it today. Um, that was crazy Luddite thinking in 2009. Um, so that's changed. Uh, you know, at, at Fortune Magazine, I worked on some stuff about, um, you know, sort of the revolving door between the Obama administration um, and the tech companies. Again, um, that was perceived as very hostile reporting at the time. Um, and uh, part of that is that it took everybody a while to see how dangerous these companies were if they have this much power and they use it in the wrong way. Um, and more people needed to see it being used in the wrong way. People needed the 2016 election to happen. They needed Brexit to happen. They needed Myanmar to happen um, to see that that kind of concentration of power could be problematic. But the other piece of it that I think matters is that the timing of these companies ballooning in the way that they did coincides with the global financial crisis. Um, and these companies benefited from there being an even worse big bad wolf in global business. Um, rhetorically, they benefited from being able to say, uh, we are, uh, you know, uh, organic green juice California capitalism, um, and the real big bads are those horrible New York bankers in suits. Um, and I'm only half joking about the language. Um, so the stuff about, you know, I'm going to go public, and I'm Mark Zuckerberg, and I'm going to the IPO in my hoodie and whatever, right? A big part of that was about rhetorically constructing themselves as a different kind of capitalism. Um, Non-threatening, not dangerous. You don't have to apply any of those old time regulations here. Um, if this, those things had not happened at the same time in that way, where all of the energy of, um, you know, even activism about corporations, Occupy and so on, um, in the Obama years being directed really specifically at the financial sector um, so that that's the face of corporate power. This other sector sort of grew up in the shadow of that. Um, and if that had not happened, I think the dynamic would be very different. Um, so, and things absolutely have changed. Um, and, and one of the reasons, um, you know, that I ended up kind of going abroad as a foreign correspondent um, is that I had run to the end of the rope of being able to cover tech companies critically. Um, because there was not appetite um, at that time for saying more about these issues. 
um, in the way that I'm thrilled to see that there is now. There's wonderful journalism about being tech, about big tech being done now. That was just there was not a market for. Um, you know, kind of 10 years ago, it worked out well for me because I went abroad to South Asia, I discovered this other weird thing uh, and got a PhD. Um, but that's sort of how I ended up changing beats. So it's, it really is, um, it's very different. Um, I'll tell one more story. Just before I was leaving journalism um, with another uh, frustrated uh, business journalist who was interested in kind of energy companies and environmental journalism, and again, sort of feeling frustrated that um, the reporting was not critical enough to the challenge we were facing. Again, now, right, feels very blasé because we know there's a crisis, but people were not talking in the language of climate crisis. Um, at the time, had set up a small foundation, we'd fundraised um, just locally in our networks um, to give grants to reporters who wanted to do this kind of work. Um, and we did a little bit of training and some events and um, we were happy with the work that we did, but we could have done more. And one of the things that was frustrating was after the Snowden leaks broke, um, the Snowden leaks break and the story is uh, the US, the UK, these governments are spying on you in the following way, right? Through your technology usage. Um, that's outrageous. All the coverage is about what the state is doing. Uh, it's mentioned that they're doing it through your consumption of these technology products that are made by private companies. Um, within 24 hours, every single one of those companies comes out with a statement saying, we didn't know anything about this. This is so outrageous. Now, only two things are possible. One is they really didn't know, in which case, uh, if your whole business is providing these products, that should be existential for your business, that your security is that weak. Two, Somebody in your company knew and the CEO didn't. Okay, now you have a management problem of disclosure in your company that should also be existentially damaging, right? Or three, somebody's lying. Uh, and if you're a publicly traded company and you're lying to shareholders, that is a form of securities fraud. Um, so we put out, we have a pot of funding. Mostly we do events and trainings. We are happy to give 3,000 US dollars to any reporter uh, that comes forward with the story of at what level does the backdoor access happen in any of the big tech companies? Is it there's one rogue engineer who's a CIA informant? Is it there's a partnership and the companies are not telling you about it? Um, what is the relationship? And we circulated that in every newsroom and we didn't get a single taker, even though there was money on the table. And we got messages from tech reporters at big news outlets saying, I am not able to do that story. I will not continue to have a career in business journalism if I do that story, so I'm not pursuing it. And that absolutely would not be the case now, right? Now you have the Wall Street Journal coming hard for Facebook. Now you have, you know, sort of um, the New York Times reporting on cybersecurity, right? Nicole Perloroth, and um, there's a whole team of amazing people working there. Um, and lots of these people are people who were colleagues of mine and who were on different beats at the time. So it, Nicole has covered a lot of topics in her career. Jeff Horowitz, who's heading the um, investigations at the journal covered the financial sector for a long time. So in this period, he was covering banks. So this is not an indictment of specific people, but it's, um, it, you know, the market has changed completely. Um, and it was a, it was for me a, a moment of realizing I needed to walk away from this beat and do something else that you could hang out $3,000 and nobody would come forward. That's incredible, especially considering how much, you know, it's changed in such a short period of time. Looking forward to the future then, um, 
perhaps not quite utopia, but if you could, you know, thinking about the way that things have changed historically and um, just, you know, in the past 10 years with tech companies, but also with companies in general, um, if you could give one recommendation, whether it be, you know, international organization, a state government, a tech corporation, a, a journalistic uh, newspaper um, about the, the power of tech corporations, um, what, what would it be? We've talked about two already, right? Which is, I think, more things like GDPR and more structural separation regulation. So I'm going to introduce one more. Um, and that is uh, the way to get at the merger problem um, is we operate merger regulation in most countries on the basis that two companies want to merge or one of them wants to buy the other. And we make an assessment of what business they're each in. And if they're in the same business and their combined market share in that business uh, would be over two thirds or over 70%, depends on the jurisdiction, you cannot combine to catapult yourself over that threshold. That's an illegal merger. You have to grow over that threshold naturally. Um, and every country has a threshold. Um, but what that means is that figuring out what business companies are in is an important part of this. And these tech companies are in too many different kinds of businesses. And sometimes they merge with companies that don't seem like they're in the same business, but once you combine them, they are. So it just makes this entire standard not workable for the economy we have. Um, at the time when Google was buying all these companies and a handful of people were beginning to write that maybe it was a bad idea, um, they bought, and this is what secured their dominance in advertising, an advertising company called DoubleClick, um, who, which were in a different, they made a different type of advertising from the type of advertising that Google made. And on that basis, Google claimed they were in separate businesses. Then they merged the data sets on which those two types of advertising run. And so it all became moot. Uh, when that merger went up in front of the FTC, uh, the FTC makes this judgment in a five judge panel. Google won that decision four to one. The one dissenting judge wrote a magnificent opinion that everybody should go and read because it contains all the recommendations of what we should do. But in it is the suggestion uh, it is impossible for a bunch of lawyers who are not trained technologists to decide what market these companies are in. Their markets are changing all the time. What we know is that they're really in the business of acquiring data. Uh, and what we should set as a new standard is every time companies with user data merge with companies that also have user data, which is all the companies, uh, they should have to agree in their merger documents in the same way that they set out you know, what the shares are going to be worth and how we're going to compensate the old investors or whatever it is. Uh, they should have to set out how the data is going to be used in future, um, which would mean that you could not promise to merge these data sets because then your merger wouldn't pass. Uh, and afterwards, if you wanted to go back and merge the data set, you would have to go back to the regulator and get new permission. Um, and this is a soft deterrent against that kind of merger. Um, and it requires them to contractually agree privacy standards and all kinds of things. So you use mergers to create these binding future-proof data contracts. Um, uh, I don't think anybody has done it. And it's, in, it's like three paragraphs in a dissenting opinion from a case that this judge lost. Um, but I think it's correct. Uh, and that's the thing I would table um, that I have been thinking about in mean, almost 15 years now, and I still think it's the best idea I've seen. Um, for what to do about the merger problem because you cannot accurately market define these kind of companies.